Good evening, brothers and sisters. Uh, please join me in prayer. Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who notices your people, that you are sovereign, Lord, over all things, and we come to you acknowledging your holiness and that you're the great I am, Lord. And we're so thankful that as we acknowledge and see who you are, Lord, that you are also a God who delivers his people, a God who saves, God who has grace and salvation for those who come to you by faith, Father, through your Son. I just pray that we would be brought to trust him more this evening and ever increasingly, Lord, as we live this life. And God, I, um, I just want to put up a couple of specific requests here this evening, God, that are things that have arised in our church. I just pray so much uh, for Fonzo's uh, surgery this week, Mr. Fonzo's surgery on Thursday, God. I pray that your hand would be with the surgeons, your hand and that your healing would be with them and that you'd be with Miss Bunny as well through it all. And Lord, I also pray for uh, Allison Davis. I pray for the Davis family as a whole. Thank you for bringing them to our church, Lord. They're such a blessing to us. I also pray for Allison at this time. Just pray that your healing hand would be there and that your comforting hand would be there. And that overall that your presence would be there, God, with them. And God, I also just pray a blessing over this men's retreat that's coming up. I pray that as the preachers prepare and, and as we all are expectant and excited about it, that you would just make it a time when edification and good preaching will build up the men of this church and also the churches from the other churches that visit there as well that come to the retreat with us. And Lord, uh, I pray for uh, Pastor Tiago and the Oliveras. I pray for their mission there in Portugal. Especially, specifically, God, I pray that you, as the one who owns all things, that has an unlimited store of unlimited resources, that you would provide for them, God, in order to build their church, in order to renovate their church and get everything up and running there at the seminary the way that it ought to be that you would provide their needs and that they would be able to glorify you through that, Lord. God, I pray for the Poyes. I pray also for the Wakefields as they are seeking to find a house, find somewhere where they can live. I pray that you would provide for them. We're very thankful that you provide for the birds. You provide for every created creature on earth, Lord, and we know that you're going to provide their needs as well. We're thankful for that. pray that you would... Again, glorify yourself in the provision that you bring them. And God, I also pray for all the churches in this city that proclaim and believe the gospel. I pray that there would be brotherhood and fellowship and love between all those churches and that your name would be glorified in those churches, Lord, and that you'd bless those churches and that you'd continue to multiply churches like that and people like that who believe your word and who believe your gospel, and that they would branch out throughout the world with your gospel. We pray for all the foreign missionaries from RBNet. We pray for all the foreign missionaries uh, in general who believe and preach the truth, Lord. And we pray for missionaries here, people planting churches in difficult places, people trying to bring the gospel to the unreached, even here in the U.S., Lord. And we just thank you so much as well for this ministry of African Pastors Conference, Father. Just pray that your blessing would be upon them, that you'd provide for them. We thank you for the ways we've gotten to witness your provision for them. And it's a real cause for thanksgiving and joy to see our prayers answered like that, Father. Thank you so much. And so this evening, Lord, as we open up your word... God, I just pray that this word would speak to us, that it would touch us, and most of all, that we would each have a greater view of who you are as our God. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text uh, this, this evening is Exodus 3. So please turn to Exodus 3, and I will briefly, as you turn there, 
I will give you a little bit of context. Uh, so last week, Hal introduced uh, Exodus 1 and then half of Exodus 2. And so Hal touched on the way that God's uh, promises and His covenant faithfulness have come through in the, in the beginning of the book already and the way that He delivers is uh, already working in His people and He's actually done so many things. The Lord has done so many things in Israel. Just this part, the beginning of the book already, He is... Um, he's already multiplied the people of Israel, even though they were in bondage. And he, you wouldn't expect that that would happen, but he did. And he already saved their future deliverer from certain destruction by his faithfulness. And he's, he is faithful to his promises, and we've seen that so far. And so then halfway through chapter 2 uh, was where Hal stopped. And from there to the beginning of chapter 3, what takes place is that this great deliverer that was raised up, that was saved in that basket from the Nile River, that great deliverer all of a sudden gains a greater sense of the plight of God's people. He all of a sudden understands more and more what his role is as the deliverer. He's starting to kind of step into his role and he starts to associate. He is a high-ranking person in Egypt, but he's starting to associate with his brethren, the low uh, Hebrews that are slaves in Egypt. And he sees a man that's uh, oppressed and he sees a man that's being abused by an Egyptian and he strikes him and he kills him. And because of that, he's forced to flee out of Egypt. He's forced to flee from this land that he's known his whole life and he's forced to live in the land of Midian. So Midian is uh, outside of Egypt. It's outside of what he knew. And there he gets married and he has kids. And we always forget this, but Acts makes it very clear. He lived there for 40 years. 40 years. There's a 40-year gap here in, in um, chapter 2. Right here, there's 40 years of Moses' life where he lives in Midian. And it's there while Moses is in Midian that the cry of God's people Israel reaches God's ears. And you know, that's not a surprise to God. It's not something new that he didn't expect was going to happen. But that cry reaches God's ears and his plan starts to unfold. So here in chapter 3, we see that God is leading the people and he's leading Moses specifically out there to meet with him, to call him specifically to his task that he's, that he's been ordained by God to do. So please open in Exodus 3 and we'll read it together. So now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord, God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be, when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed. Every woman shall ask her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Thus ends the reading of God's Word. So brothers and sisters, there are many misconceptions in the world today about who God is. Many. Most people do not understand who the God of the Bible truly is. We live in a world where people are quite okay. They're quite fine with not taking the time to study this book to find out what God actually says about Himself, but rather, they come with all of their preconceived notions. They come with their own desires. They come with their own uh, conceptions of what they wish God would be like. And then they make a God into their own image. And uh, one that kind of fits their own modern sensibilities and things like that. They don't necessarily want to hear what what the Bible says the God of the Bible really is like. So some examples of this. Uh, Some people claim that the God of the Bible is not all-knowing. They claim that He's not sovereign. They claim that He is unaware of the future and that He actually can make mistakes, that He actually makes things up as He goes along, that He actually undergoes change. Other people, and probably the most popular opinion today, and I know that you all know somebody who's said this before, uh, this is a very popular view, is to view God as so loving so gracious, so compassionate, so merciful that he just doesn't mind sin. He doesn't mind the fact that we're sinners. He doesn't uh, have any plans to punish sin. In fact, he's perfectly fine with leaving sin unpunished. That's what they might say. And the problem with people like this is they'll live like that, and then the the measure of, of what is right and wrong becomes how happy they are. It's not about what God says is right and wrong. It's about how happy they are. And so these are two views among many wrong views of who God is and the of of who the God of the Bible is. These are two uh, of many that we'll see. We'll look at a few more later on. But I want to say this this evening that without a doubt, the biggest issue, the biggest problem in our world today, in churches today, anywhere today, is that people don't know who God is. They just don't know who God is. And so this evening, I'm going to get it right, before Moses is going um, to uh, set out on his task, God is going to show Moses who he is. He's not just going to leave him oblivious or not understanding who God is. He's going to show Moses very clearly who the God of the Bible truly is. So this text answers the question, who is our God? This text gives us the clear biblical precedent, who is our God? And so before uh, we move on to understanding the rest of the Bible, before we understand the rest of Exodus, before we understand so many things of what God does and who God is in the world, we must first study here at the beginning of the Bible how He explains who He is. He answers the question, 
Who is our God? So the first thing we see is that our God is the God who notices His people. He's the God who notices His people. So look with me at verse 7. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of My people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And verse 9 says very similarly that the Lord beheld the cry of the children of Israel, that He's seen their oppression. And then verse uh, 16, again, it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, And I have surely visited you, and I have seen what is done to you in Egypt. And so we see clearly here that we want to understand who God is. And when we, when we want to understand who God is, He reveals Himself to us as one who notices His people. And the way that He does that is by seeing His people, by hearing His people, and by knowing them. And He knows them not just uh, generally speaking, but as His own covenant people. And he, and he knows them in their suffering, in their hardship. These Israelites are people who are trapped in a foreign land being enslaved and persecuted constantly. And so look at the end of verse 2 there. It's his covenant people, his own special people. At the end of verse 2, chapter 2, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 24, it says, So God heard, again, he heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Some other translations say God knew them. And so you remember at the beginning, I told you guys there's a bunch of wrong views about who God is. Some people say that God is, um, some people are what you call a deist. Okay, so a deist is someone who views God as one who created the world we see around us, but then he just kind of set it in motion and lets it run according to its natural order, according to its own uh, order that God set into it, but that God is not personally noticing his people. He's not personally involved with his creation. He does not personally connect with um, His people in their suffering. He doesn't personally see them. He doesn't personally hear them. He doesn't personally know them. But this text very clearly shows us that that is not what God is like. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be careful that we do not inadvertently begin to live like a deist. We must be conscious to always know that God is intimately involved in our life. And He intimately knows us, sees us, and hears what's going on. And that's so important for us to realize. And it's very scriptural to think that way because God literally tells us, in all your ways acknowledge Him. Right? He doesn't say in some of your ways or do whatever you want. I'm detached from you. No, He's very involved in this world. And He notices His people. Remember that the Israelites, they had, they had been bearing their burdens for hundreds of years. They had been suffering for hundreds of years. And God saw them in their toil and their suffering, in their groaning. He saw their confusion. You can imagine the confusion, because they know there were promises made to Abraham. And I, I know you mentioned last week, there was a promise that there would be a 400-year time. But if you're lost in a foreign land and God feels far from you, 400 years starts to feel terrible. And so these people were in a horrible state of despair, physical and emotional pain. But because God is in a covenant relationship with His people here, He notices them. And so this is actually a common thing for all Christians. All people who are God's covenant people are, these, are like these Israelites. So God says to the Israelites, He hears their groaning. That's a repeated thing that happens here at the beginning of Exodus. God hears their groaning. Well, Romans 8.23, that's in the New Testament. It says, We groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So all of us as Christians, we're groaning. Similar to the Israelites here, we're also groaning in this life, in this broken and fallen world. So how much consolation does it not bring us to realize that our God is not removed. He's not distant from us, brothers and sisters. He sees you and He hears you and He knows your groaning. And the ultimate comfort about this is the fact 
But God says to the Israelites something interesting in verse 7 at the bottom. He says, For I know their sorrows. I know their sorrows. I know their hardships. And you know that Jesus is the man of sorrows. So he knows our sorrows as Christians too. So he notices, he sees, and he knows his people. So we've seen this. Our God is a God who notices his people, brothers and sisters. But our God is also the God who is sovereign. Our God is the God who is sovereign. So let's move on to that. Our God is the God who is sovereign. So when I say that God is sovereign, I mean that he's all knowing. And I mean that he's all powerful. And that in the words of Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 10, this is so amazing. He is God. There is no other. He is God, and there is none like him, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. People have wrong views of who God is. He's telling us very clearly over and over again what he's like. He is sovereign. So he is the God who can do and will do and wants to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to, and however he wants to. And he knows those things that are going to come to pass are going to come to pass before they ever do. Right? He is sovereign. He truly is all-knowing. He has this counsel that will stand and he will do all of his pleasure. So how does God's sovereignty, how does the fact that God is sovereign relate to this text or this, uh, the beginning of the Exodus story here? First, we saw already that God has a very specific time limit on how long His people will be in captivity. Doesn't that not prove that He is sovereign if He can decide things like this? Also, we see that God's sovereign hand is at work when He brought Moses safely out of, out of, uh, captivity, or out of um, the water already. He was sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating all of this. And then we saw how God used the 40 years. There was 40 years where Moses was wandering in Midian. He used those faithfully while Moses was watching sheep of all things. Right Now this is obviously to point us to the fact that Moses is going to be the shepherd who brings um, Israel out. But in the view of Egyptians, being a shepherd was an abomination. It was literally considered an abomination. Genesis says that. And so Moses is in the wilderness for 40 years doing a job that his people around him when he was growing up would have said is an abomination. And God still has a wonderful, sovereign plan with all of this. And all of these years are not wasted. He is sovereignly teaching Moses exactly what he needs to become and exactly who he needs to be to be the man that God has called him to be, to be the man who is going to do exactly what he was born for. Exactly what he was born for. Imagine a God more sovereign than this. And not only this, look with me at verse 1. In verse 1 it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So in God's sovereignty, he's taken Moses as he's watching his sheep to a very specific place where he's spontaneously going to meet him and teach him something and show himself to Moses. And then look at the bottom of verse 12. The bottom of verse 12 says, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the mountain where Moses was sovereignly led by God is the exact same mountain that God guarantees he will bring an entire like multitude, thousands, millions, how? Millions, thousands. How many Israelites? Doesn't matter. A lot of people are coming out here. Okay? A lot of people are coming out um, to this mountain, right? It's amazing that God can predict these kind of things ahead of time. Not only this, but in verse 16 and 17, God actually tells, reiterates His promise to Abraham and assures that the people will not only be brought out of Egypt, but that they'll be brought into the promised land and conquer and enter into the land that God has ordained for them. So tell me this, how can a God who is not all-powerful, how can a God who is not all-knowing guarantee this kind of thing? How can God not be sovereign? If you know the Scriptures, if you read them, and you want to know who God is, 
God is a sovereign God who ordains and shapes and moves through all the acts, all the things in His world that He's made to make His will come to pass according to what He has ordained. Our God is sovereign. And there are so many people in our world today who do not want to believe in a version of God like what I just described. Like the God that I just showed you is clearly on display here in Exodus. They'd rather have a God who is changing, a God who is undecided, a God who is weak, a God who is helpless. What on earth could be more hopeless, more discouraging, more overall disappointing than to come to worship a God who is such a sad figment of your imagination? The God of the Bible is sovereign, brothers and sisters. He is an amazing God, an epic God. He is so captivating because of this. So brothers, let's bring this back down to earth. Let's not forget who our God is when we have issues, when we have our daily struggles, when we have our temptations to sin, and our hardships and our heartaches, our family problems and any number of things. Let's just not forget who our God actually is. Brothers and sisters, we need to be confident of this very thing that the same God who brought Israel out of Egypt against all odds, He guaranteed it ahead of time and He made it happen. He promised it and He's going to fulfill it is the same God who has begun a good work in you and me. He is faithful to complete His work until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing encouragement, brothers and sisters? So our God is the God who notices His people and is sovereign. And our God is also the God who is holy. Our God is the God who is holy. Turn to verses 5 and 6 with me. To see that our God is the God who is holy. Then He said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. This is actually the very first time in the whole Bible that the word holy appears. It's clearly an important moment. As, God, as Moses is approaching this burning bush, he is immediately commanded to take his shoes off because the holy ground on which he stands. Now something I want you to keep in mind is it's nothing about the earth that Moses was standing on, the actual ground that was significantly holy. It was the fact that the presence of the holy God was there. That's what made that ground holy. That's what made that place so holy. The thing that makes this ground unapproachable, the thing that, mean, that makes it so that Moses has to take his shoes off is the fact that the one and true and holy God is there. It's the presence of God made manifest in that burning bush that renders that place to be holy. And so this is actually a common trend in Scripture. This is keeping with Scripture that whenever God shows Himself to people, this in, incites a an awareness of their sinfulness, an awareness of their shortcoming, an awareness of their trembling and fear and the fact that they should tremble and be concerned that the Holy God is there in their presence. So Moses shows this when he covers his face because he knows he cannot look upon God. He knows that God is too holy. And he does obey God because he says, wow, God, you are holy. I'm going to take off my shoes. I'm taking off my sandals in your presence. Remember also in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw God. And what did he do? He immediately realized that he was unclean. His lips were not clean. His lips were not, were not what they should be. And remember also in that same passage, just like Moses covered his eyes, the angels in heaven that were in the presence of the Lord, what did they do? They had a set of wings wasn't designed specifically just to cover their eyes because they could not look upon God because God is holy. And so what does it mean that God is holy? What it means that God is holy is that it ultimately means He is separate. When, I'm, when I say separate, I don't mean He's far away. He's far away from us. I mean that He's different from us. Utterly different from us. And the reason He's so different from us is because He's the epitome of perfection. He, in comparison to us, is entirely perfect. 
He is perfect in every single way, and that makes him unapproachable to sinners like you and I. It makes him unapproachable to sinners like Moses. So, it's so, so important, like I said at the beginning, that if we don't know who God is, we're going to fall into many traps and many errors. It's so important to realize how holy God is. It's so important to know that He is holy. Our God is a holy God. The fact that God is holy is for all intents and purposes what actually makes the whole gospel message make sense. Like, I hope we realize this. If we don't understand, if we don't acknowledge in our heart and see God as holy in Scripture, we will never understand the gospel. It just doesn't make sense. These people I described at the beginning who are willing to kind of say, oh, God doesn't mind sin. God doesn't worry about sin. God is not concerned with my sin. God just wants me to be happy. God will save all people of all religions, of all stripes, no matter what. They don't see that God is holy. We know from Scripture that our God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and that He cannot look on wickedness. We know also from the New Testament that God is light. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So this makes the Gospel make sense, right? We need an intercessor. We need a mediator. We need Jesus Christ. If we don't understand this, we completely lose the message of Scripture. We completely lose our entire um, direction, our entire hope. Later in Exodus here, we see Moses when he's finally brought the Israelites out and there's a song. We're going to do a whole sermon on that. I'm not sure who's going to, but it's a whole sermon on that song. But here, uh, Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? So in all of this work that he's been a part of, that Moses has been witnessing of God, he still acknowledges God is holy. This awareness of God's holiness should keep us from forming God into our own image. should keep us from trying to make God into something just like us. Something fallible. Something weak. No, God is not like that. God is holy, brothers and sisters. And it's really interesting. And I think it's an amazing kind of proof for the fact that the Bible is true that when we look around at all the religions of the world, look around at every religion of the world, did any of those religions create a God as holy as the one who here reveals Himself? No, they didn't. And why is that? Because they'd be dooming themselves. You're sending yourself to hell. You're dooming yourself when you create the God that you worship this holy. That's how we know this is not a human creation. That's God telling us what He's like. You see the difference? When a... When a um, Buddhist or somebody shapes God, he shapes God into something that he can please with his own actions. Someone that he can just come to in his own righteousness, in his own holiness. He would never form God like this God. He would never form a God so terribly, terrifyingly holy that he literally has to cover his eyes. But our God here is holy, and we know that the only way that we can come to him is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way we can ever approach this God the only way we can experience His grace and His love is because of Jesus Christ's saving grace. So our God is holy, brothers and sisters. And so we've seen that our God notices His people. We've seen that He's sovereign and we've seen that He's holy. So now we're still answering the question, who is our God? And now we see that our God is I Am. Our God is I Am. Turn to verses 13 to 15. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. 
This is the very famous statement of God defining Himself and showing Himself to be I am. It's, res- it's a response to a question that the Israelites are going to ask. Who, who told you to do this, Moses? Who sent you here? And then God reveals Himself to Moses. And f- this is actually the first time in the whole Bible where God defines His name like this. Where, defi- where God shows the meaning of His name, which is Yahweh. Not the first time that the name shows up in the Bible. It's the first time in the history of redemption that God defines that name. He didn't define it to Jacob. He didn't define it to Abraham. He revealed Himself to them. He made promises to them. But here, to Moses, He makes a very special connection and He defines Himself. He shows us and explains what His name means. He really explains so much of who He is. So This explanation comes in three stages. It's important to remember this. I think it's possible that it will be hard to follow this, so I want you to really focus okay, on this part. Three stages He reveals Himself. The first stage... He says in verse 13, no, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Okay, so that's not really a name yet. It's more of a description. It's more of a it's a broader definition of who God is. Then at the end of that verse, he says, I am has you shall say, I am has sent me to you. So now you can see it's turning into a name. So this phrase is being boiled down into a name. And then in verse 15, it says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, and then it says, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So there, this this definition, this description gets boiled down into more of a statement for a name, and then it gets boiled down into the word Yahweh. So this is also important to notice. I don't often like to bring in all this language stuff. Because I don't want to make anyone think that you on your own cannot understand what the Bible says. But here it's important because you can't see this in English. But the word Yahweh is, in terms of its letters, in terms of the way it's written in Hebrew, is actually the same, um, is built off of the same structure as in that description and then in the word I am. So it's, it's, it's the author Moses' intention to teach us here that God's very name is related to these two previous statements. And so most people who talk about this passage, and I'm on board with them 100%, they refer to this as a statement of God's transcendence, as a statement of His greatness. When He says, I am who I am, it's saying, I am and I just am pure, perfect existence. I am transcendent. I am great. I am the fact um, he's saying, I am uh, just who I am. It's, just, it's an amazing statement about His transcendence and His greatness. It says that He will be who He will be. It's a statement that He is and there is nothing and there is no one that depends on Him. There is no one that He depends on. <laughs> There's nothing and no one that, that can offer anything to God, that can bring anything to Him that will make Him complete. It will make Him whole. He is I Am. He is pure and perfect existence. He is the God who created everything. He has no beginning, no end. He's the most glorious being. And the entire purpose of all that we do as believers is to believe and follow a God like that. An ultimate and a perfect and a supreme God. And I 100% agree with that aspect of it. But there's also more to it than that. If you could imagine that there could be more to it than that. That's already amazing, but there's even more to it than that. So when the word I am is used in this passage, there's actually a connotation there of of it actually saying, I will be. I will be. It's not just I am, it's also I will be. It's a future uh, connotation in this word. And the the thing that's important to realize there is is that it is again in context, if we read in the bottom, in the beginning of verse 12 there, look at verse 12, it says, to Moses, it says, I will certainly be with you. So if anybody, Hal, you might read Hebrew or something. If anybody looks at that, they'll notice that I will be there in verse 12 is actually the same word that's used when it's here in verse 14 when it says I am. So the fact that, Mo- that God will be with Moses is tied up here in this aspect of I am who I am and that I am has sent me to you. And this again 
ties back into the bottom of on, on verse 15 when it talks about the fact that it's a covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This again ties back in there because in Genesis 26 verse 3, this exact same word appears when God tells Isaac, I will be with you. This exact same word appears in Genesis 31 verse 3 when God tells Jacob, I will be with you. This exact same verse appears in Exodus 4 verse 12 when God tells Moses that he will be with his mouth. This exact same verse appears or this exact same word appears in Deuteronomy 31:23 right before the Israelites go into the promised land when God tells Joshua, "I will be with you." See that? So it's an it's actually wrapped up in the very name of God, a promise of his presence with us. Isn't that incredible? Brothers and sisters, his name actually tells us that he promises to be with his people. So he is transcendent. He is great. Nothing, um, there's nothing that he depends on. But then at the same breath, he is with you and I. He is with those who put their faith and their trust in him. He is with those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. He's guaranteeing His unique and His intimate presence with His people. This actually relates again. I haven't touched much on the fact that this bush was burning. There's a big part of this passage. Like people don't, that's pretty crazy. There's a burning bush and it's not being burned up. This whole fact of God revealing His name as I am, the fact that God is showing who He is here, relates back to this part uh, above here when... um, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire, in verse 2, from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so we see that God reveals his name here in a very supernatural event. Something that could not be explained any other way than that the living God was there. A bush is on fire, but this bush is not burning. In in other words, it's literally saying to Moses, God is here with you, Moses. God is here with you because this is a crazy supernatural event that's taking place. And then in Acts 7, verse 35, this same angel of the Lord who was here in this burning bush, it says that Moses was a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So that angel being with him our Lord being with him is actually, um, is actually a statement coupled up again with this name of God, of God as I will be with you, of God as I am. And you'll remember that it wasn't that long ago that we celebrated Christmas, right? And what was the word we were constantly using at Christmas time? And for some reason, we don't ever say it any other time of year. Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? God with us. It's God with us. And so it's so connected with this name of God revealed here. Emmanuel, God with us. And who is Emmanuel? That's Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God with us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is God's presence with His people. And then we look, again, tying this this burning bush situation in, we look at Pentecost, and we see the Holy Spirit being poured out We see the Holy Spirit being poured out in a greater way than ever before in history. And what is it that appears on the heads of the people there? They're tongues of fire, just like the burning bush. So in the Spirit being poured out, in the Spirit given to each of us here, any of us who trust in Jesus Christ, who truly have been saved, the Holy Spirit there, given in Acts, is the same Holy Spirit that dwells with us. The fire there, given to them, is the same that's given to us. The fire there that shows up in this burning bush is the same that's given to us. God is with us, brothers and sisters. God has assured us in His name here because of who He is that He will always be with us. It's a promise. So our God is a God who notices His people. He is sovereign. He is holy. And He is I Am. And so finally, we're going to see that our God is the deliverer. Our God is the deliverer. Look at verse 8. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up 
from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. So again, ahead of time, here we see a wonderful assurance from uh, God to Moses telling him that he will definitely deliver the people of Israel. God is going to do everything necessary to deliver the people of Israel. We see also that he will bring them into the promised land. He will defeat their enemies and he'll bring them into the promised land. And who is it that will fight for them? Who is it that's going to do everything to get Israel from captivity into promised land? Captivity out of, Israel, out of Egypt. In Exodus 15.3 it says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And throughout Exodus, it says the Lord is going to fight for His people. The Lord is the one who fights for His people. He is a deliverer. Our God is a God who delivers His people. So He will go out. He will defeat the enemy. He will set the people free. He makes salvation a possibility. And then near the end of this chapter, we again see God being the deliverer in verses 18 to 22. I'm not going to read the whole section of verses 18 to 22, but I'm just going to walk you through how God shows us how He delivers His people. What does our God, our God who saves, our God who delivers His people, what what kind of things can we learn about Him here? First we see, we've already kind of seen this, but we see that God does everything that is necessary for them to be set free. God makes it possible in every way. So even though Pharaoh will be stubborn and hard-hearted, even though Pharaoh is going to um, stand fast in his wickedness, stand fast in his stubbornness, and resist uh, God's uh, effort to release the people, God is still going to work through that. He's going to make it possible, and He's going to do everything necessary. And it even says um, that He's going to strike them with many wonders. He's going to strike the Egyptians with many wonders in order to release his people. So verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go out. Not only that, but the people of Israel, they will leave Egypt rich. You remember when I read it at the beginning? They will, they will leave Egypt rich, having plundered the Egyptians of everything that they have as far as riches and gold and things like that are concerned. It says in verse 22, Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Can you imagine that? Like, I don't... It took me a long time before I knew this was in the Bible, but that's unbelievable. They are slaves in a country, and by the time God is done doing His delivering, can you believe that they are rich and they're taking all the riches away without ever having to fight? They're literally saying, here, take all our riches. Take everything. And that's supposed to show us that in the fact that God is a deliverer and the fact that He is a God who would send His Son to die on the cross for our sin, He gives us all the riches we could ever imagine. He gives us everything we could ever desire. He literally gives us adoption as sons. He gives us the fullness of the Spirit. He gives us eternal life. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. God is a deliverer and He shows that to us in this passage. This really foreshadows what Jesus is going to do. It really foreshadows the fact that Jesus does everything in salvation. He doesn't say, hey, I'll save you a little bit, and then I'll make you take the gold and the silver and the jewels and the stuff. No, He doesn't say that. He says, I'll do everything, and I'll even somehow make them give you everything. I'm going to take care of it. And how does Jesus do that? He lives a perfect life. He dies under the hand of sinners. He rises from the dead. He ascends on high. He pours out the Spirit. And then we know that whom the Son sets free is free indeed because He's done everything possible. He's done everything needed. God is a deliverer. Our God is a deliverer who makes everything possible for us to be saved. So I'll conclude with this. Throughout the book of Exodus, there's a common refrain, which is when God acts, 
when God shows Himself and when God does the things He does in the world, there's a common refrain that comes up and it is, and then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. In other words, they will know that I am Yahweh. The Yahweh that we just spent some time understanding. The Yahweh that we just spent some time knowing what His name means. Whenever God does something, whenever God does something in His redemption, whenever God does something in His work, He's doing it so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Ultimately, at the end of time, we know this is the case from the New Testament passages. It says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that I am Lord. Right? In other words, what we're seeing there is that in everything that God does, He's doing it for His name and for His fame. And that's the God who we serve. So hopefully going through this passage has showed us in a clearer way, helped to reveal to us what the answer to our big question was at the beginning. Our big question was, who is our God? Who is our God? It's clear to us and God acts in His name and in His works to show us who is our God. And there will come a day when we will all have to bow, when we will all have to submit to Him. We'll all have to put our trust and our faith in Him or else or else we will never be saved. And even if you don't put your trust in Him, even if you don't submit to Him, even if you don't come to Jesus Christ to be saved, you're still going to have to acknowledge that. Just like these Egyptians that got swept away in the sea, they still have to acknowledge at the end of the day that the God of the Bible is this God that I was talking about tonight. It's not some other God. It's not some figment. It's not some other thing that they've created. They'll have to acknowledge that this God is the God who created all things, who created them, and who's been merciful and uh, patient enough to even give them a chance to repent. So 6,800 times the name Yahweh appears in the Bible. Actually, more than 6,800 times. So what I want you to know from now on is whenever you're reading Scripture and you see the name Yahweh come up, then you know that God the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your God is a God who notices His people. He is a God who is sovereign. He is a God who is holy. He'll be with His people as the great I Am, and He delivers His people. Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for who You are. So hard to... uh, describe who you are God you are so amazing so beyond our words so beyond my capacity to convey that to people but Lord I pray that we would have a greater vision of who you are and that it would break down and release the shackles of sin and captivity and slavery that we have in our lives that we'd greater serve you and glorify you father I pray this in Jesus name amen